You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Father Brian Milady. I'm a priest of the Dominican Order, and I'm giving you a series of lectures on the subject of nature and grace for the International Catholic University. In the first lesson, I want to examine a famous theological problem, which is related to the solution that I'm going to give you throughout these lectures on the relationship of nature to grace. The Catholic faith teaches that grace perfects nature and doesn't destroy nature. There's a wonderful line in the movie, I don't know if it's in the book, I haven't read it for a while, Jane Eyre, where the headmaster of the school, when she's a girl, says, grace destroys nature. This is not what we have ever taught in Catholicism. In Catholicism, what we have always emphasized is that there's some part of the human soul which is naturally capable of experiencing God. The Latin terminology for this is that man is capax dei, or capable of God. This capacity is affirmed at the very beginning of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, when it says in number 27, the desire for God is written in the human heart, because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for, for the dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God. This truth is also expressed in a famous saying of St. Augustine that causes great consolation when read by Christians. That's also quoted at the beginning of the Catechism. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. All Catholic theologians are in agreement as to this truth. The problem comes with the explanation of just what the source of this capacity for God is, which the Catechism terms right at the very beginning, the desire for God. The truth that man has a natural capacity for God is directly contrary to certain modern philosophical ideas on this subject which stem from the philosophical movements of rationalism and fideism, both of which teach that too much interest in supernaturally experiencing God is an alienation of man from himself. Communion with the Trinity is treated by some today as a very esoteric question, which has nothing to do with ordinary Christian life. The famous mystery writer Dorothy Sayers in a mock test she made up about what Christians are popularly held to believe, asked, what is the Holy Trinity? She answered, almost in the name of the contemporary world, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the whole thing incomprehensible, something could in by theologians to make it more difficult, nothing to do with daily life and ethics. And this last statement, needs very much to be emphasized. Nothing to do with daily life and ethics. 
You know, it's not uncommon to go to a Catholic parish and hear the priest say, well, tomorrow's the day we tell them there's nothing we can say about the thing because the whole thing is a mystery. And therefore, why talk about it at all? Feast of the Most Holy Trinity. Now we're baptized in the name of the Trinity, we're confirmed in the name of the Trinity, we make the sign of the cross daily in the name of the Trinity, and yet we can't say anything about it at all. It has nothing to do with daily life or ethics. No. The Catholic faith has always maintained that the Trinity has everything to do with daily life and ethics because grace perfects nature. Vatican II spoke very eloquently against a tendency in Catholic spirituality to split grace from morals and to make lay people called to one kind of experiencing God, which wasn't a deep communion with Him, and contemplative religious and perhaps priests called to another way of experiencing God. What Vatican II teaches is that there's only one holiness, though there may be many roads to the one holiness, there's only one holiness. And they did this in a chapter in the document on the church, chapter 5, which they themselves entitled The Universal Call to Holiness. Theologians have generally been at pains to point out that since grace is a perfection of nature, each Christian receives the same God through the same elevation of sanctifying grace. And God does not give us this elevation. You could say he doesn't give us the seeds of life so that they will not become flowers. In the same way, he doesn't give us grace so that some will experience the heights of contemplation while others have to be satisfied with a lesser spirituality. Again, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we are taught all Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. That's in number 2013. Now, though this doctrine has been clearly enunciated by the church in every age, there has been great difficulty in explaining why all men must be called to the perfection of charity in the last 400 years. And this is because of a famous solution which was made to the problem of grace as perfecting nature by a Dominican cardinal who was a great theologian at the Council of Trent named Thomas de Vio Cajetan. He lived from 1469 to 1534. Cardinal Cajetan, among his other contributions, wrote a massive commentary to St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, in which he addressed the subject of the desire of man for God. His conclusion was that if one hypothetically examined the powers of the human soul, intellect, will, passions, and body, there was no necessary capacity in them for grace or for the direct experience of heaven, the vision of God, or the supernatural order. If you only examine these human powers hypothetically, you would have to say that man could be satisfied or happy with only knowing God like the philosophers know him as the cause of effects. He thought this because he interpreted the desire for God to be a desire of the will, a moral desire. If this were in some power of the human soul, the will, then Cajetan reasoned God would be forced to give man grace, a monstrous conclusion. Cajetan called this hypothetical state the state of pure nature. Yet Cardinal Cajetan was very much aware 
that it is the fine doctrine of the Catholic Church that man cannot be happy with anything on this earth. Only the vision of God in heaven can be the final destiny or the final purpose of human life. How can one explain this if there is no natural power in man which must be completed in God? Well, Kajetan taught that man wasn't created hypothetically, he was created historically. That is to say, the Council of Trent had defined that man was created with sanctifying grace. Adam, before the original sin, was created with sanctifying grace. For Kajetan, this was the reason why man was called to the vision of God. It was the creation of man in grace which is the explanation for his need for heaven. In other words, human nature had two ends, you could say. It had an end which it would have been given had man not been created in grace, a hypothetical end, and then it had an actual end, which was the end it received when Adam was created in time. Now, Leo XIII, a pope of the last century, ordered the Cajetan's commentary be included in the first critical edition of the Summa actually printed on the border of the page, thus trying to say that Cajetan was the authentic interpreter of St. Thomas. The problem is that Cajetan denies the fact that there is any kind of natural desire to see God when St. Thomas many, many times affirms this. And in this class, I'm not going to give you those texts. I'm going to give them to you in the next class. But let me just give you a representative text. St. Thomas, in a famous commentary he wrote on an ancient work, Boethius's commentary on the Trinity says that man is called to an end by nature that he cannot attain by nature, but only by grace, and that because of the exalted character of the end. And in the Summa, St. Thomas uses the term natural desire several times, and in another work he wrote, the Summa Contra Gentiles, which we will be examining very completely in the next lesson, Cardinal Cajetan uses the term natural desire many, many times concerning the ordering of man to God. More than this, Cardinal Cajetan denying that there was a natural desire to see God, even going against the clear indication of the text, was called even by people, and not only in this point, but in many others, who were his own contemporaries and also Thomists, a corrupter of St. Thomas. Another Dominican, Dominic Soto, who lived from 1495 to 1560, says of Cardinal Cajetan's famous commentary on the Summa, Haec glossa destruit textum est tortuosa. This commentary destroys the text. It's full of contradictions. Early in the 19th century, another Thomistic author said, Hoc in re videtur apertissime a sancti tomi discidere. In this thing, it seems that Cajetan most clearly, most openly disagrees with St. Thomas. And Canon Baltazar, writing an article in 1928 in a magazine called Criterion, says, one asks oneself how Cajetan had the nerve to propose his exegesis and why it was, in point of fact, taken seriously for such a long time. The priest who was the head of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas in the most contemporary period we're living in now, Monsignor Antonio Piolanti, wrote in an article in 1957 that Cajetan separates the natural from the supernatural orders 
or we could say nature from grace, the same way he separates himself from St. Thomas. And the famous Thomistic philosopher Etienne Gilson, in some letters he wrote to the Jesuit Father Henri de Lubac in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, writes this, It seems to me the Cajetan is done for. Very soon we'll be called upon to stand up for him, and you've already started. I'm fully aware that sometimes I overdo it, but after due reflection and in all objectivity, I think I would still label Cajetan's commentary a corruptorium, a corruption, for two reasons. His commentary on the first article of the Summa Theologiae topples the whole book off the track from the very outset. Then, representing himself as interpreting the meaning of the work, he proceeds to lead St. Thomas's readers astray. It took me years to figure that out. When I finally did and said something about it, I was afraid it would be a shock to everyone. I was astonished that I got no reaction at all. I didn't know everybody already knew this, but wanted to keep the skeleton in the cupboard. Thanks to you, I get the picture. So, for many, many centuries, Cardinal Cajetan's interpretation of St. Thomas was accepted. And what is bedrock to that interpretation are two points. First, that there is only what is traditionally referred to as an obediential potency in man for heaven and for grace. This means that there is nothing in the intellect, the will, the emotions, or the body that has as their natural perfection and completion grace. Secondly, the possibility of the state of pure nature, that is to say, that man could have been created by God as man with an intellect, will, emotions, and body in a neutral state with respect to seeing God in the face. The fact that man wasn't created that way is due to God's gift. But since God elevated man to another end, and he would have had, if he hadn't been elevated by grace, we have heaven as our destiny. Now, in this century, there was a famous theologian who took it as his life's work to try to unravel the difficulties caused by Cajetan's solution and to give a proper solution to this problem. This theologian is named Henri de Lubac. In the 1950s, Father de Lubac wrote a book which in French is called Surnaturel, which just means supernatural. In this book, he criticized the traditional solution to the problem of nature and grace proposed by Cardinal Cajetan. Around this time, Pius XII also published an encyclical called Humani Generis, in which he sought to answer modern errors in theology. In this encyclical, Pius XII teaches that it's not possible for man to create intellectual substances without ordering God to himself as a heresy. He says that this statement is a heresy, and it's condemned as an error to maintain that man has a natural appetite for God, that God has to fulfill by giving him grace, so that you could say everything about man is engraced. As a result of this encyclical, Father de Lubac was forbidden by certain people in the Holy Office of the Vatican 
to publish anything on this question, on the relationship of nature to grace, on which he had written this book. Later, he wrote a book on the mystery of the church, and when Pius XII read this book, he loved it, and he asked what was going on with Father de Lubac, and they said, well, he's been forbidden from publishing on the question of nature and grace, and Pius XII exonerated him and said to lift this prohibition. When he lifted this prohibition, Father de Lubac republished this book, trying to work out some of the kinks, and this republishing was made in two volumes, which have been published in English, and I noticed recently one of them has been reprinted. The first one is called Augustinianism, and again, this was in the late 50s and early 60s, and Modern Theology. The second one is called The Mystery of the Supernatural. The Mystery of the Supernatural, I notice, in some Catholic magazines, has just been recently reprinted. So it's an important book. Now, the reason I put these two books up is because it's very important for an analysis of the problem that we're going to undertake in these lessons. In the book Augustinianism and Modern Theology, Father de Lubac criticizes the traditional solution made by Cardinal Cajetan, and he does this under the rubric of a famous heresy that occurred in the 16th and 17th century called Jansenism. He makes an historical analysis of Jansenism and the church's difficulties in coming to deal with Jansenism, and he believes that the reason the church had such great difficulty coming to deal with Jansenism was because of Cardinal Cajetan's solution to this difficulty. Now, I would maintain that his criticism of the traditional solution is correct. The reason is because you can't give any nature two ends. Nature has to have only one end, one destiny. It's simply impossible. Either you alienate the first nature, or you create something completely different. If man is to be man, then he has to have a human end. And the human end has to be the same, whether he's created in grace or not because that's the way natures are. Now, therefore, I believe that his criticism of the traditional Dominican position was true. In The Mystery of the Supernatural, Father de Lubac gives his own solution to this question. And it is this that I think is problematic. And I think it's caused a lot of the difficulties that have occurred in the church after Vatican II. Not so much Father de Lubac, but a further analysis of this, which I will show you in a minute. In The Mystery of the Supernatural, Father de Lubac maintains there are what he calls three realities, actually, about nature and grace. The first is what he calls pure nature. This is an abstract idea, which for him means isn't real exactly. It isn't individual. It isn't what we experience in individually existing human beings. The second is existential nature or individuals. Cardinal Lubac calls this, because he was later made a cardinal by the Pope, in fancy two-bit language, philosophical language, man is an individual concretized essence. And then the third reality is grace. Now which one of these is ordered to grace? It's not A, but B. So in other words, if you consider human nature, the intellect, the will, the emotions and the body, the soul in the abstract, there's no reason why God is needed for human fulfillment. The way, for example, maybe the pagan philosophers considered man. But if you consider him in the concrete, 
the way he was actually created, then there is a need in human nature for grace. Now the trouble is that, you know, what we've been trying to do is solve how grace and nature are related to each other. We've been trying to show there's a close connection between the two. What we've actually done in this solution is place a third body between the two. And there are many Dominicans, especially of my order, who criticized, because Father de Lubac criticized our traditional position, who criticized Father de Lubac's solution as destroying nature. I don't think it is destroying grace. I don't think Father de Lubac's solution destroys grace. I think it destroys nature because it makes a distinction between nature considered as a universal and nature considered as a particular. And there is a famous philosophical error that makes a distinction between ideas and facts, and that is nominalism. So there's a very peculiar nominalism in Father de Lubac's solution to this question. Also, Father de Lubac, just like everybody else who wrote on this question, thought that the natural desire, as St. Thomas uses the word, to see God, must mean an appetite, and that this appetite must be in the will. As we shall see, always emphasizing the will here gets the whole problem off to the wrong track to begin with. Because when St. Thomas talks about this, as you'll see when I read it to you from the text in the next lesson, he talks about the natural desire of the intellect. Now, all this would be just so academic except for one more figure who comes along in the process and that is the famous Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner. Karl Rahner decided to write on this question also in the late 50s or early 60s in an article he wrote called On the Relationship of Nature to Grace. Karl Rahner's solution to this question bears a lot of resemblance to Father de Lubach's solution to this question. According to Karl Rahner, you have human nature, then you have grace, and in between you have what he calls, again, in fancy two-bit philosophical terminology. I hate to throw this on you, but this is an important term because you will find that it is used constantly throughout the highfalutin theologians of post-Vatican II Church, the supernatural existential. Now why existential? This is the same as Father de Lubac talking about each individual person. In other words, why are we called to know God in the face, in heaven, and why are we called to be elevated in grace? Because God zapped that into each one of us as an individual. That's what the existential means here. As existential is opposed here to essential, which would be this human nature considered as a whole. And it's supernatural because it's ordered to a state above our ability to attain union with God, communion with God, grace, seeing God in the face. Now when Karl Rahner comes to examine this, he says this, nature in the theological sense, as opposed to nature as a substantial content of an entity always to be encountered in contingent fact, that is, as the concept contraposed to the supernatural is consequently what he calls a remainder concept. In German, this is Restbegriff, a remainder concept. And then he says of it, 
Thus, there is no way of telling exactly how man's nature for itself alone would react, what precisely it would be for itself alone. In other words, if I were to take out of nature its ordering to God and to grace and to heaven, nobody know what it is. Now, see, he goes one better than Father de Lubach, who maintains that it's an abstract nature that you can examine and discuss. He says, there isn't any nature at all. Once man has been created in grace, nature has been totally changed. There's even a place where he says that now we have a supernatural mathematics as opposed to natural mathematics, and they're two different sciences just because grace has entered the world. Now, the trouble with this is that, again, where the intention of all these theologians was in the face of Cardinal Cajetan's solution to make nature and grace more closely connected, what they've done is like an alien body create a greater gulf between the two. And the reason is because they treat individuals as though they weren't full and complete representatives of universal ideas and truths. Bishop Sheen, many years ago, in a philosophical paper he wrote for his doctor's degree, said that the great error of the modern world was the universal idea was entreated as an impoverished sense experience. In other words, the rose smelled less sweet when you knew it, or water was less wet when you knew it. There was a great distinction made between thought and an individual thing. Whereas in all traditional ideas, what the thought does, what the mind experiences, what the person experiences, is through the thought a union with the thing as it really is. So if we knew nature in the abstract, that would be a true union with the individual concrete thing. The other difficulty is that when a person puts nature to grace together in this way, they also have a tendency to destroy the difference between the two. There's a Jesuit thinker, James Mahoney, who gave a series of lectures at Oxford University in the 80s, and he examines this problem of Karl Runner's, and he says there, the continuity and interpretation in history of God's work as both creator and savior have the effect, if not of blurring, at least of rendering academic the conceptual distinction between nature and supernature. Now, for those of you who don't understand fancy philosophical terms, what he's basically saying there is that after Karl Rahner wrote, because of the supernatural existential, it becomes very difficult to distinguish between God and the world. That in some sense they're almost identical with each other. That the only difference between the two would be one found in my mind not exactly one found in reality. Now, I'm not maintaining that Father Rahner meant to do this. What I am maintaining, though, is that because of his very peculiar ideas on philosophy, that actually he falls into this. In an article written in the Gregorian magazine in 1994 by a person who's a follower of Karl Rahner, Patrick J. Burke, we read the following. It's clear, not least from his insistence on abstraction and his resistance to modernism, that Bronner both recognized the necessity of human conceptual thought and maintained its validity in taking the mind to reality. In other words, Bronner maintained that nominalism wasn't true, 
that there was a true relationship between what you thought and what was actually the case and the thing as it was going on. Rahner, for example, writes Burke, took issue with Hans Kung and attempted to refute Kung's thesis that the church could not define infallibly because no human statement could be absolutely true, arguing instead that the judgment does take the mind to reality. In other words, Karl Rahner was against the relativism of Hans Kung, who maintained that nobody, even the Pope, could make an absolute statement about anything that would be absolutely true. But then Burke continues. While we have seen how Rahner argued to this conclusion, we have also seen that there is an inherent weakness within his thought. It is not transparently clear how conceptual thought, that's to say the idea in our minds, in Rahner's own epistemological system, that's his theory of knowledge, can be preserved from relativization. And see, this is the whole point. It's not clear how Karl Rahner can maintain that there is any absolute truth, given the way he thinks, but especially the absolute truth of human nature. In other words, what I would want to say is that Cardinal de Lubac was correct in his criticism of Cardinal Cajetan's thought. But remember, Cardinal Cajetan maintained that it was a whole nature that was elevated. In other words, every single individual in the whole group that was both elevated by grace, given this end, and then wounded by sin, not just individual after individual after individual after individual, but the whole class of man, man considered universally as to every man participating in this. What Father de Lubac and Karl Rahner have done is destroy nature in reducing the nature to which we all participate merely to an individual experience. And more than that, Cardinal de Lubac was a very astute person, and later when it came to post-Vatican II ideas, he recognized that there was a great tendency to destroy this orientation which each of us has to the supernatural, not so much because of his ideas, but at least because of the way people thought about things in the contemporary world. He talks in a little book he wrote, I think it was in the 80s, called A Brief Catechesis on Nature and Grace, about what he refers to as the pseudo-council. And the pseudo-council was the council that wanted Vatican II to say something much more than it said. They wanted, for example, the document on the church in the modern world, traditionally referred to as Schema 13, to suggest that human progress in this world was exactly the same and to be identified with progress in grace. What they talked about was implicit Christianity so that everything you could say, in a sense, became holy. He says in one of the pages of this book, the closing invitation, and this was especially on the part of Father Skelebex and a few other theologians, was to structure the world in such a way that men may be able to live in it in a Christian manner, in a manner worthy of men. He says this can provoke agreement as broad as its formulation, and as though to put a seal on the ambiguities that characterize this talk, and then on the false note of an incomplete quotation, the glory of God is man fully alive. Now you know in the 60s it was customary to put banners up in churches 
And one of the statements they used to write on these banners was the glory of God is man fully alive. But the trouble is they forgot to quote the second half of the quotation. And not only did they forget this, but many other authors have forgotten that also. The quotation comes from St. Irenaeus, an ancient father of the church. And one modern author, post-Vatican II, writes, it is to Irenaeus that we owe the beautiful formula, the glory of God is man who lives. That is, as we read again recently, an age-old adage of Christians. This author, like many others, does not quote the full quotation. The full quotation is, the glory of God is man fully alive, but the life of man, man fully alive, is the vision of God, which places the emphasis of the quotation squarely on the desire to see God in the face. Now, having said this then, I've given you what I think is the traditional solution to this problem, which affirms what is called the state of pure nature as possible, that man can be neutral with respect to God. I've also given you a long history of various solutions to this question. All of these solutions I find inadequate. And the reason I find them inadequate is because they look on the desire of God as described in the Catechism and as described in St. Thomas as a desire of the will, an appetite of the will, a moral appetite. I think even Father de Lubac and Father Rahner do this. In actual fact, the desire of God is a desire of the intellect. And if we want to look at where it's first described, we have to look all the way back to Aristotle to his metaphysics. In Aristotle's metaphysics, the very first sentence is man by nature desires to know. And in the first book, Aristotle describes what causes men to desire to know. It's the fact that they wish to flee from ignorance. This desire to know begins with an experience of nature and in experiencing nature, a person, Aristotle says, wonders about why nature is the way that it is. In other words, I sit here and I look at the trees and I look at the sun and I look at the moon and I look at the clouds. This drives me. There's a force in me that wants to know why these things are the way they are. You know how a little kid always asks why? Children read comic strips like Calvin and Hobbes, you know, what makes the clouds? And his father gives him some very stupid answer, like there's a man who sits and raises up these things that look fluffy. And Calvin says, well, mom didn't say that. And the dad says, well, you know, your mother doesn't understand these things. Only men understand these things. When he's given him a completely stupid explanation. But you know, children wonder why. They're always asking why. Why is this the case? Why is that the case? Why is the other thing the case? The reason is because there's a natural desire in the human race to know the cause of all the effects known by us. And what are those effects? Those effects are the things most evident to our immediate experience, that is to say, the world around us. It's these effects that led the first men, according to Aristotle, to begin to philosophize, that led them to go out of themselves to discover the truth. 
And in the first book of the Metaphysics, Aristotle says that until the men experience the primary explanation for the whole world, the first cause, that their desire to know the causes cannot be stilled. Now, the first philosophers, in a way, dreamed, St. Thomas says in one of his works, the truth. Because when they first went out to discover the first cause, they thought it was material. Thales, who's traditionally considered to be the first of the philosophers, believed that everything was water. Other philosophers thought it was a combination of the famous four ancient elements, fire, earth, air, and water. Aristotle says that when a philosopher, I believe it was Anaxagoras, said that it was mind, he was speaking like a sober man among drunks because he'd first of all fallen on the ultimate truth that the first cause of the world had to be something that was not material or what we would say was spiritual. Always before they'd had to give it a material explanation because they were like little kids first beginning to discover something. They were still materialists, they were still lost in the original sin, and so the first explanation they gave, though they dreamed the truth and said it was one, they limited to some one thing that was material. But eventually, little by little, the philosophers began to discover the causes more and more, until they finally, without looking for it, stumbled on the fact that the first cause had to be a spiritual being who was personal and who was not composed, was one, absolutely one, absolutely whole, and absolutely complete, or you could say God. And probably the first two people who stumbled on this without looking for it were Plato and Aristotle. In other words, man goes out to the material world like someone would go into a graveyard to dig a grave. And in examining the material world, Man, like the gravedigger, without looking for it, stumbles upon a treasure. In this case, the treasure was the existence of God. The difficulty is that once you know that God exists, this doesn't still the mind's wonder. See, if you follow Cardinal Cajetan's solution, you'd have to maintain that the philosophers, once they knew that God existed, would have to be happy with that, that that could be man's ultimate happiness, man's ultimate fulfillment. And yet, the mind is of such a character that when man in his mind, when man in his intellect discovers the existence of God without looking for him, the mind wants to know more. Now, you know, the trouble is, however, that man can't go beyond the material order as far as knowing anything more about God than the fact that he exists and what sort of being he is. But the mind has this thrust, it has this dynamism where it wants to know the first cause as it is in itself. It wants to know the ultimate explanation as it is in itself. Now, of course, we can't do that. There's no way, no way possible for us to go beyond the material world as far as making God directly an object of our experience. St. Paul, remember, in one of his letters, says, we see now through a glass darkly, but then I shall know as I am known by vision. Here, we always know God through mediums. We always know God through something which is a middle thing. The material world is the first way 
Jesus' flesh and the sacraments are the more perfect way, but they're not yet seeing God as he is in himself. The dynamism of the mind carries us on to want to ask the question why, to answer it in wonder, and to want to directly experience God as he is in himself. And yet even by faith, even by grace, we can't do that. St. Teresa says when she reflects on this question that we love God so much here that we want to see him in the face there, but we can't, muero porque no muero, I'm dying because I don't die. I'm dying of love. By grace, St. Teresa had been elevated to a communion with God. She knew a great deal about God from experience. She actually maintains in one of her mystical writings that a person who's so in love with God can actually distinguish between the action of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in their everyday life by experience. But the person still wants to know the first cause as the first cause is in itself. And they cannot do that unless they are elevated to do so by grace. So, man in the state of original sin, which is the only man that was open to the experience of Plato and Aristotle, is like the fox before the grapes. This man sees that the grapes are delicious. He sees that the grapes are desirable. Yet he has no way to arrive there. He's gone out into the field. He's discovered the treasure, which is God's existence. Yet he can't possibly arrive at any kind of direct knowledge of that God by his own power. It is absolutely necessary that he be elevated to do this by a grace or a gift given to him that is over and above his natural powers that his power to know may be completed. And we call that gift sanctifying grace. One of the objections to the position that it is grace which is a necessary means to still the desire of the intellect is that Aristotle doesn't talk about this desire. Well, you know, Aristotle was a very intelligent man and he never talked about anything that was impossible. Since he knew that there was nothing in human nature that could give us the ability to attain to God, the ability to arrive at God, why talk about it being there, this desire. In fact, in his Ethics, Aristotle talks for, I think it's eight long books, about all the powers in man's soul and what fulfills them. And he chicks off, as we shall do in the next lesson, boy, you'll see this in spades in the next lesson, because I'm going to read various texts to you from St. Thomas. He chicks off all the various things in which human happiness is found, according to what people's normal idea of things is. And he says, he proves that none of these can be the final goal for human formation, or what we call ethics for human integrity. And at the end of his ethics he says, well, human integrity can only consist in the contemplation of God. But this is like a divine activity. I don't know anybody who's like this. I don't know anybody who can do this. And so then he says, so we have to be satisfied with just doing what we're able to do as far as ethical perfection in life by nature. 
and that is the next book he writes, which is the companion book to the ethics, which is the politics. In other words, how in human society to carry out activities which can give us a modicum of imperfect happiness here, but can certainly not give us the final happiness, the final goal by which our soul is finally stilled in the contemplation of God directly as he is in himself. So let me try to summarize what it is exactly I've been trying to explain in this lesson. The problem of nature to grace demands that a person be able to see how it is that grace can perfect nature. In order for grace to perfect nature, it's necessary that we find some power in nature that grace can fulfill. Now, traditionally speaking, Cardinal Cajetan maintained that there was no power in nature as such for grace to fulfill. This was his interpretation of St. Thomas. And in it, he denied a famous statement St. Thomas made that there is a natural desire to see God that men can even know by reason is the case. In other words, it's possible by reason to know that there's no good in this world which can still the human soul's desire for perfection. In this, he created an unnatural chasm between man considered in his powers and man considered as ordered to grace between man considered by philosophy and man considered by theology, between man considered by the pagans and man considered by the Christians. And he maintained that a person was ordered to grace only because of the elevation to grace, which is taught to us in the scripture in the Old Testament. Father de Lubach and Rahner sought to correct this, but their problem was that their solution was worse because they involved us in an even deeper chasm between nature and grace. The solution of this class will be a middle one and it will help us to understand just what grace is, what human nature is, what law is, and why grace is the fulfillment of the law as it's presented in the scripture. That solution, which I'm going to examine in the next lesson, is taught to us by St. Thomas in which St. Thomas maintains that it's because of the presence of the intellect in man, of reason in man, desiring to know the causes of the effects directly experienced and open to our ordinary everyday life that the human soul needs God in order to be whole and complete because the intellect directly is driven by the desire to want to know, and that this desire to want to know was known by Aristotle, was known by the pagans, but they also knew that there was nothing that could fulfill this desire on earth. There's a beautiful quotation in St. Thomas where he's trying to express an idea which is not exactly quoted in St. Augustine, but is throughout St. Augustine's works, and that is this. As the soul is the life of the body, so God is the life of the soul. Why is it necessary that God be the life of the soul? Because there is a power in the soul which can't be stilled in anything less than God. If you think about that quotation I gave you at the beginning, it will become very clear what I'm trying to emphasize here. Man by nature is called to an end by nature. 
that he cannot attain by nature, but only by grace. And that because of the exalted character of the end. You know, the fathers in Vatican II wanted to encourage people more to the supernatural life. It seems to me that they wanted to emphasize more how fascinated and interested people should be in grace. One of the reasons they wrote the liturgy document was because they wanted the liturgy not to just be a spectator sport, but to be something in which people were deeply involved in the mystery of the supernatural, in which they realized that the supernatural Jesus in his risen flesh was being presented to them on the altar and that they were being filled with grace. And what have we got instead? We've got these crazy masses that emphasize man and life in this world instead of God. Why is this the case? The reason is because of this peculiar solution to the problem of the relationship of nature to grace, in which grace and nature are somehow unified together and become very confused and unable to be distinguished. Though they are deeply ordered to each other, they always must be kept distinct. Though grace transforms nature, though it elevates nature, though it divinizes nature and deifies it, it does not turn man into God. The glory of God is man fully alive, but man fully alive is man when he sees We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.